If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please open to the book of Romans? Just kidding. Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 is where we're going to start this morning. And we're going to dip over into chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, we'll share the passage on the screen here in just a moment when we read through it. As always, I want to encourage you to bring your Bible from home, have it with you for our study time together. I think it makes a huge difference in your understanding and your, uh, your interaction with the Word. Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 27 is where we'll start in just a little bit. A couple of years ago, there was a football team, or a football game, excuse me, Navy versus Fordham. And on this particular day, Navy had a fourth string quarterback, a young man named Malcolm Perry. As a four-string quarterback, you don't get a jersey for the game. You, you're in attendance, but you're a spectator because a football team doesn't need four quarterbacks on the sideline. And so on this particular day for this game, Malcolm, the fourth-string quarterback for Navy, was in the stands with all the rest of the spectators. And then some weird things began to happen. Uh, the first-string quarterback for Navy got injured and was knocked out of the game. Second-string quarterback is put in, which is fine. The third-string quarterback was injured prior to the game and didn't suit up. So now all of a sudden, Navy only has their one quarterback in the game and no backup on the sideline. The coach sent someone into the stands to look for Malcolm. And they found him. And they said, Malcolm, you got to get your jersey on. you got to go. And so he sprints out of the stands, goes to the locker room, puts on his pads and his jersey, and he goes to the sideline. Uh, as the game went on, Navy was just rolling, and towards the end of the game, they had a huge lead over Fordham. And so the coach put Malcolm in the game. And what did Malcolm do? He proceeded to lead his team on a 90-yard touchdown drive. And at the end of the game, he was the celebrated hero for the team. He didn't put all the points on the board. He just put one touchdown on the board. But everyone was celebrating Malcolm, who went from being a spectator to being a quarterback and a player in the game. The headlines, the reason I know this story is because the headlines the next day were about the, the Navy quarterback who was plucked out of the stands and put into the game to play. It's an unbelievable story. And what an incredible change or transition for this young man, Malcolm, to go from spectator to football player. Now, truth be told, every time we're at a football game, watch a football game, we're thinking, if Bill calls on me, I'll be ready to go <laughs> anytime. That's how most of us think anyways. But it's incredible when it really happens. He went from a spectator to a celebrated quarterback. I can think of one change greater than that, one transition greater than that, that maybe you personally have experienced. That's going from a condemned rebel against God to a child of God with an eternal inheritance. That is a transition that happens for every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. It's a change of infinite magnitude. I can't put into words what it means to go from spiritually dead to eternally alive through faith in Jesus Christ. But that's what happens for every person who goes all in on Jesus, who puts everything on him, who says, my life is yours and I trust you explicitly. Now, Paul, in his letter to the churches in Galatia, is trying to help these New Christians understand this and believe it. This is the message that won their hearts and that transformed their lives. 
Paul held Christ out to them in the story of his death and resurrection for them. And the promise of God fulfilled in Christ that if they would believe in him, they would be forgiven and have everlasting life. That transformed them. It changed these people from the inside out. And then you know the rest of the story. After Paul left, false teachers moved in and said, no, you're not really a child of God. You're, you're on the right track, but what you need to do along with believing in Jesus is add the Mosaic law. Start keeping these religious rules and then you might be one day a child of God. So when Paul sits down to write this letter, as you know already because you've been with us in this study, uh, he is fighting for faith alone in Jesus Christ. He's trying to rescue these people he loves from their own self-destruction by turning away from Christ and thinking that keeping Mosaic law gives them favor with God. It does not. As we've gone throughout this study, Paul approaches this issue from every conceivable angle. It's not just one argument throughout. He's machine gunning arguments from every possible facet to win and rescue the hearts of these Galatian Christians who he loves so much. He's argued so much for the ability of faith alone, but today our passage has a slight shift in it. Now he argues for the effect of faith alone in Jesus Christ. What does it do? How does it change me? What does it mean that it makes me a child of God? And so my goal today is to help you understand just this, to understand the effect of faith. If it makes me a child of God, what kind of child am I? How does it change my life? I want you to understand all that is yours in Christ when you're a child of God. So if you came in here today with fears about your salvation, if you came in here today with worries that God is far from you, If you came in here feeling like there's a great gulf that you cannot overcome, I want you to hear and believe the word of God this morning. Follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 27. It'll be on the screen for you to follow along if you don't have your Bible with you. Paul writes this. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ... Uh, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. It's a beautiful passage. Filled with hope for us. And it tells us what it means to be a child of God. Paul gives us three descriptions of what it means to be a child of God this morning. I want to share those with you. The first description is this. It means we are diverse children with a united family. If I'm a child of God, that means that we are collectively diverse children. But we have this one singular united family of faith. 
verse 27 and 28, beautiful verses, well-known verses in the Bible. But they sometimes tend to be a little confusing. Uh, and so let's take just a quick moment to make sense of them. Verse 27, Paul says, Those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Now, verse 27, the phrase baptized into Christ is often confusing. Uh, and so is Paul saying here that baptism is required for salvation? How could he possibly be saying that with all that we've read up to this point in his letter. He's not saying baptism is like the new circumcision in that it is required for your salvation. Uh, nor is Paul saying baptism is the moment of faith. As if to say your faith doesn't really take effect until you are plunged in the baptismal waters. That also does not align with the argument he's made throughout this letter. Rather, here's how I understand Paul's use of this phrase. He's talking about baptism with a very high view as that which is normal but not necessary for one's salvation. It is normal that believers would be baptized following the command of Christ. And that baptism is our public identity with Christ. Our union with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. And then also our union with others. I think that's why he uses baptism language instead of faith language in this particular verse. Because he's talking about our public unity with each other. We are one in Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. Baptism being that public symbol of our faith and union with him. So Paul says those of you that are baptized into Christ, you've been clothed with Christ. You haven't been clothed by Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. Christ. This is what it is to be his child, to have a right standing before God the Father. Christ covers you like a blanket of righteousness. He's not a seed of righteousness that blooms in you over the course of your life and your walk with God. He is a blanket of righteousness that covers you and immediately, in the moment of faith, gives you right standing with God. The righteousness you're judged on is not your own righteousness but the righteousness of Christ. That's what makes salvation so secure, so eternal, so trustworthy. Otherwise, we have nothing if we don't have Christ in His righteousness. When you put your faith in Him, you are covered with Christ. In verse 28, these beautiful words, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's an interesting list that Paul gives us. Jew or Greek speaks to ethnic distinctions. Slave or free speaks to socioeconomic distinctions. Male or female speaks to gender distinctions. I have often seen these verses ripped out of their context and used for arguments that don't align with what Paul's giving us here. I've seen it more commonly used to uh, support an eradication of gender distinctions in the church and in the home. There's no male or female. But is that what Paul's saying here? Is that how he's using this phrase? It's absolutely not. It's disingenuous to take this and apply it to some other argument. What's Paul's point in verse 29? The verse is about the equal access we all have to Christ by faith. Jesus doesn't show favoritism because you're a free Jewish male. He clothes with righteousness anyone who comes to him in faith. 
And so when we are one with Him, we're now one with each other. Those old boundaries that divide us are ripped away. We're not classified according to our labels in the family of Christ. It doesn't mean ethnicity is eradicated. It doesn't mean uh, uniqueness or individuality is eradicated. It means that we are one in Him, clothed in Christ. And so the family of faith includes people from every ethnicity and every socioeconomic status and both genders and every conceivable sinful past. The family of faith is the poor and the wealthy, the powerful and the powerless sitting at that same eternal table feasting to the Lamb. It's religious sinners who have been saved and irreligious sinners who have been saved together in the same eternal choir, praising God for the salvation He's given us. In this room, we gather together on earth as it is in heaven, not showing preference to anyone for any reason whatsoever. What's sacred to us as a church is not decorum, is not appearance, is not our sacred cows. What's sacred is souls. And when that human walks in this door, we love them, we embrace them, we carry them to Christ, we pray for them, we enter into their hurt and suffering, we celebrate with them in their victories because it is people who are sacred to God. And that's what makes the church different from the world. So here's what I do as a Christian. When I get to verse 29, I look at these distinctions, ethnic, socioeconomic, gender distinctions. And I want to ask myself before the Lord, is there any way in which any sin in me, which inhibits people from any walk of life, from hearing the gospel or believing the gospel? From just these three categories. Is there racism in me? Is there misogyny in me? Is there prejudice of any kind in me that would inhibit the gospel from being heard and believed? And God, if there is, rip that sin out now. I want to speak uh, very pointedly for a moment to the sin of racism. I've been around a lot of white people in my life. Oddly enough, I've not been around a single racist. That's because uh, they'll always say, I'm not racist, but. And what follows 100% of the time has always been racist. I have encountered a hell's amount of racism in the church. Just about nearly every church I've been in has had, I've witnessed expressions of racism from pastors all the way down to lay people. And I've heard stories that would make, that would make you sick to hear how people who claim to follow Christ think about other people because of the color of their skin. Somehow we've made racism into a right versus left issue when in actuality it's a right versus wrong issue. Every human heart is capable of racism. That's true. 
But in my experience, if I were put on the witness stand, I would testify that I have seen 100% of the racism I have witnessed in my life from white people. Our sanctification and repentance is not complete in this area. Now, our church, we talked about this uh, in our annual meeting this last Sunday night. Great question was asked. Um, South Shore Baptist Church is not a racist church. I'm not trying to create some deviance where there is not one. Uh, over the past three and a half years, I'm aware of one incidence of racism that took place on our campus, and it was dealt with swiftly. But by and large, we're not. I've seen. I know racist churches. We we are not a racist church. But we are still a broken people being mended by Christ. Our repentance and sanctification is not complete. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to join me in a prayer this week, a prayer of inspection. The, the prayer is going to come from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And it says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. I want to challenge you to pray that prayer with me, to soak in it every day in the week to come. I promise you, you pray that, God will answer it. I promise you when God answers it, it will not be, "Mm, you're good. Because He cares about our holiness. He cares about our sanctification. And if we come to Him and say, I want to move away from sin in my thoughts and in my life, He is good and gracious and will lead us in that. Would you pray that this week, every day? It doesn't have to be a lot of words. It probably should be a lot of listening. God, know my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? Any way in which I inhibit people from hearing the gospel and responding in faith. Because we're a diverse body. In a united family. Our brothers and sisters come from every nation. Every melanin level. Every background. God is putting together a beautiful family. The diversity of the family of faith reflects the sovereign creativity of our Savior. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue makes up that family. What kind of children are we? We're diverse, fam- diverse children in a united family. Second, we are adopted children with an eternal inheritance. We are adopted children with an eternal inheritance. Verses 29 through 5 Uh, Paul uses an analogy that probably made more sense in the first century than it does in the 21st century. Uh, He starts off by saying to the Galatians, look, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. He's stating what is already true about them. He's not saying you've got potential to get there. He's saying this is the way it is. You put your faith in Christ, you're an heir of Abraham, you, you have this promise fulfilled to you in Christ. So then starting in verse 1, he begins with this analogy that needs a little bit of explanation. He says, I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So in this word picture, he says, you've got a kid who is the heir to his parents' estate, let's say. But he, doesn't ha- he has a promise he doesn't have possession as long as he's a child. So in this instance, he's like a slave 
in that he doesn't own anything. He's got a promise, but he has no possession. And it's that way until the time appointed by the child's father. Look at verse 2. It says, instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So he's not going to hand the keys to the car to the six-year-old and say, have a good day. When the time is right, whether that is the child reaches a certain age or the father reaches a certain milestone himself, then the inheritance goes to the child, but not before then. So now, verse 3, Paul connects the dots for us. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When we were children, meaning before we came to maturity in Christ, before we were born anew in Christ, we were just like children who had a promise but no possession. We were children who actually were more like slaves than we were owners of an inheritance because we were under this temporary guardian. If you were with us last week, we talked about the nature of the law. And if you didn't join us last week, would you please, please, please take a few minutes to go back and watch that sermon from last week. Because what Paul says about the nature of the Mosaic Law is so important to understanding your place with Christ. He says that Mosaic Law was a temporary guardian. It exposed sinfulness. It doesn't produce righteousness. And so we were like slaves to that law under the elements of this world, until the appointed time. And what was the appointed time? How long do we live in that way? Verse 4, when the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are like slaves until Christ comes. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul just rattles off these huge, monumental theological statements about the very person and nature of Jesus Christ. I'll put them on the screen for you here. Here's what he says. He tells us, first of all, that he is God's son. That means he's divine. He's not God-light. He's not more than a man, less than a God. He is fully God. Born of a woman. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He actually walked on earth and used doors and rode donkeys and ate food and drank water. Fully God, fully man. Born under the law. Meaning Jesus doesn't receive grace. He doesn't need grace because he fulfills all the requirements of the law. Only the God man can do that. So he's born under the law. In order to redeem those who are also under the law. He rescues us from sin. Breaks us free from that slavery. And adopts us. He turns rebels into children. He takes us. He makes us his adopted children. Gives us an eternal inheritance. What an incredible picture of our salvation. Why is Jesus such a big deal? Why do we always point people to trust in him and believe him for their salvation? Because of this. There is no other like Christ. There is no one like Him who loves you and who came for you. Who is God who descended, took on flesh, fulfilled the law, and died in your place for your sin. There's no other but Him. And if you don't walk with Christ, if you're not a believer, the invitation is open wide to you today to trust in Him. Turn from your sin. Put your whole life in His direction. All that you are belongs to Him And you'll never be the same. Forgiveness is yours. Guilt and shame no longer yours. But you become his child with an eternal inheritance. You'll say yes to Christ today.
Does it change your worship in any way to know that when you come to sing to God, you already possess an eternal inheritance that He gave you? Does it change your praying in any way to come to God and know, I'm already His child. I I don't have to pray from a position of want or lack or deficit. I have everything in Christ. Does that change anything about the way you pray? Or about your worship? Or about your time in the Word? Or about the way you share your faith? How incredibly abundant has He been to us. To be adopted means you had nothing, but now you have everything in Christ. One last picture he gives us of what it means to be a child of God. He tells us finally that we are beloved children with a close father. We're diverse children with a united family, adopted children with an eternal inheritance. We are beloved children with a close father. Verses 6 and 7, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. He says, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And God the Spirit in our hearts, indwelling us, cries out, Abba, Father. Now, I've heard quite a few sermons on the word Abba. And the same story is always told about this word. And I love the story. The, The story is that this word is an Aramaic term that a young child would use for her dad. It's kind of like calling him Daddy. And I knew a guy, I knew a pastor that when he prayed, he would, he, would, he would start his prayers with daddy because of his teaching. I love that. It's a beautiful picture. There's some truth in that. But then a while back, I read a joy-sucking article from some nerd of a Bible scholar that said, mm, there's not enough linguistic support for that argument. <laughs> and he would say, I, I, it's not really daddy, but it, it's a term that really an adult child would use to their father. It's a term of reverence and respect and intimacy and trust and closeness. God the Spirit indwells you and cries out, Abba, Father. How does the Father hear your prayer? How does He know your name? How does He order your steps? How does He know your needs before you know your needs? How does He know that? Because God the Spirit in you cries out, Abba, Father. Have you seen the Trinitarian description of your salvation this morning? You are clothed with Christ. God the Spirit indwelling you as you cry out in an intimate relationship to your Heavenly Father. Unbelievable what Paul has given us today. Now, in the Old Testament, access to God was limited. Only once a year could the high priest enter the Holy of Holies and commune with God. But every time you bow your head in prayer, you have access to God unfiltered, unfettered. You have more privilege than Moses had. You have more access than any high priest ever had. Because God the Spirit in you cries out, Abba, Father. And when that cry comes out of you, it doesn't go to some distant galaxy. It's spoken to the Father who is as near as your breath. I have four daughters, two biological, two adopted. Today they will say to me, Happy Father's Day, Dad. I will not have two of them say, Happy Father's Day, Dad. And the other two say, Happy Father's Day, Mr. Busby. 
They are mine and I am theirs. And if that's true in such a finite, broken relationship as mine with my children, how much more true is it for God the Father, for His children? Clothed with Christ and dwelt by the Spirit, crying out to our Heavenly Father, Abba, Father. We aren't slaves. We aren't employees. We are beloved children with a close Father. So Paul's given us these beautiful pictures today. We're children who are diverse, adopted, and loved, and we are given a family, we are given an inheritance, and we have a father who is right close by. You may be familiar with the name John Wesley. He and his brother Charles were the founders of the Methodist Church, and they were tremendous tremendous evangelical leaders in the 1700s. Before John Wesley became a Christian, he was a better Christian than most Christians at least as far as his outward behavior was concerned. During his time in college, he helped start a group called the Holy Club. How pretentious is that, even for the 1700s? The Holy Club. Uh, But the students in the club went to church and studied their Bibles and fasted and prayed. They would go into prisons and do evangelism. They provided food, clothing, and education for the poor children of the city. And all the while, John Wesley was a spiritual orphan. He was in bondage to his own religiosity. It wasn't until years later that Wesley finally came to trust in Christ only for his salvation, his quote. As he looked back on everything he had done for God before he came to Christ, he wrote this, I had the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. You're striving to earn your religious favor your salvation through your religious works and your self-shaped morality? Or have you been rescued from the penalty of your sin by believing in the God-man sent of the Father who redeems you and adopts you? God has sent His Son into the world that we might receive the position of sons and daughters. And when we trust in Christ for our salvation, God takes us into His home as heirs and nobody's taking us away. Nobody. It is indescribably glorious be a child of God. Let's pray together. To you, Abba Father, we lift our praises this morning. Because who has loved us like you have? Who came to us? Who descended? Who released the glory of heaven? Did not clutch onto it, but handed it off in order to go to the debasement of the cross. There's only one. It's the lion who looks like a lamb that was crucified. And so we praise your name. Holy Spirit, give us words for this praise as we cry out to our Abba Father. Jesus Christ, we glorify you for the righteousness you cover us with. And to you, our Holy Father, we praise you for the grace you have given us for the diversity that makes up your family, for the inheritance that is ours forever in Christ, for your nearness to us. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.